Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Well, we're going to go ahead and continue our discussion looking at diet, nutrition, and metabolism. Once again, looking at does it matter what we eat? This time looking at fats. So do we need fat? What is the need for fats in our body? What is the need for fats in our diet? We need fats to act as a fuel source. We need fats to act as protection. They give us cushioning around our organs and within some of our joints. They act as insulation to our body to protect us from weather changes outside. We need fats to make hormones and to make neurotransmitters. They're important with neural functions. They're important with the development of the membranes around all of the cells of the body. They're important for the absorption of a lot of vitamins that we have, in particular, the lipid-soluble vitamins that we are going to eat in our diet, such as vitamins A, D, E, and then the transportation of vitamin K from the intestines into the body. So what is a fat? A fat, chemically speaking, and you can look at the uh, lipid metabolism video that is up, as well as the lipid metabolism uh, podcast, uh, to go, go into a lot more of the chemistry here. But what is a fat? A fat is the simply a hydrocarbon molecule. So a hydrocarbon is simply a chain of several carbons and hydrogens put together. At the end of this chain of carbons and hydrogens, we have a carboxyl group or a carboxylic acid, a COOH or a carbon, two, two oxygens and a hydrogen at the end of the chain. We will commonly see these found in lipid droplets, and I'll explain what lipid droplets are here in a second, within the body. These, fat, these hydrocarbon chains, these lipid molecules, these fatty acids, if they are connected to glycerol molecules, we will call them a glyceride. If there are three of them put together, it's a triglyceride. That's usually how we will think about the glyceride molecules. If there's two, it's a diglyceride. If there's one, it's just a monoglyceride. Now, these fatty acid chains and glycerols, we can modify that a little bit and add a phosphate to it. And if we add a phosphate to it, we get, we get a phospholipid. And so one of the functions that fats have in the body, one of the functions that lipids have in the body is to make membranes. And the lipid that actually makes the membrane is the phospholipid. And what this does is this creates a barrier of outside cell environment to inside cell environment by lining up the fat molecules, the molecules that don't like water, with the phosphate molecule that likes water, so that we end up having this barrier, which is referred to as a diphospholipid membrane. So there's two phospholipids that are stuck back to back which means that the fatty acid ends are going to be stuck towards each other. That's going to create this barrier that we reference as the membrane. And it's that membrane that's going to uh, allow for the cell to function as a cell. It's the same lipid molecules, the same phospholipids in particular, that's going to be involved with the absorption of fats from what we're consuming in our diet and once again, look at the, the YouTube uh, on the fat digestion and absorption to get more information on that. So just like we talked about previously in terms of amino acids and carbohydrates, are fats all equal? Are they made equally in terms of how they are chemically arranged and in terms of what we need in terms of our diet? In this case here, we look at three distinct types of fats in terms of the molecules. We have a saturated fat, 
And a saturated fat is where all of the carbons and all of the hydrogens are bound together, where there's no double bonds, no two pairs of electrons being shared within the uh, hydrocarbon chain. Then we have the unsaturated fat. and the unsaturated fat, we have at least one carbon pair that is sharing two electrons within their bonds. And there's different types of unsaturated fats. There is the monounsaturated fat where there's one pair. And then there's the polyunsaturated fat where there's more than one pair. And then we get to the trans fats and we'll explain what all of these are here. So the mono, excuse me, the saturated and the monounsaturated fats. If we look at the saturated fats, all we have is this big long chain of carbons and hydrogens where each carbon is single bonded to all of the other carbons within the chain. So we have no double bonds whatsoever. In the monounsaturated, we have one double bond. And usually that one double bond leads to one kind of little kink, one bend that we see in the fatty acid chain. And that bend is very important because that's what's gonna establish what's usually referred to as a cis arrangement and a trans arrangement within the trans fat molecule. And so we have, so we have uh, fats like palmitoic acid and oleic acid, which are the uh, monounsaturated fats. And then we get the polyunsaturated fats. In the polyunsaturated fats, we have more than one double bond, which means we have more than one bend within it. And so we have things like linoleic acid, where we have multiple bends within the linoleic acid that is gonna be caused by the arrangement of the hydrogens within the bonds that's gonna kind of propel them away from each other. So each hydrogen within that double bond is slightly positive. And so what it's gonna do is it's gonna push each other away very similar to think about magnets pushing each other away. And so what that does is that causes that bend to take place. Now, when we look at it in terms of the physical structure of the fats, the monounsaturated and the polyunsaturated fats at room temperature are gonna be liquids. Those are gonna be the oils that we will usually cook with. The saturated fats, the saturated fats and the more saturated fat we have within the fat itself, is going to be more solid in, at room temperature. So if you think about things like butter, that is going to have a lot more saturated fat within it than the unsaturated fat because it's more solid at room temperature. However, if you leave it out for a long period of time, out at room temperature, it will start to, to soften. And the softening is where those unsaturated fats within the butter molecule will start to do their conversion from being a solid to being a liquid. And that's great for doing some cooking, but if we want stuff that, to have a little bit longer shelf life, what we want to do is, is we want to do some conversions of those unsaturated fats. And so there was this old adage that we don't want to eat saturated fats, we want to eat unsaturated fats, which is kind of true, kind of not true. It depends upon how we want to look at it in terms of metabolically speaking. When we talk about metabolics, we want to use saturated fats more than we want to use unsaturated fats in terms of energetic metabolism. However, for a lot of the other metabolic processes, we'll be using a lot of those unsaturated fats, and we'll get a list of some of those unsaturated fats functions as we go through today. What people noticed in the late 1800s is that if I do some chemistry on the unsaturated fats, I can keep that unsaturated double bond in the molecule, but I can put the hydrogens on opposite sides. So if the hydrogens are sitting on the same side, it's what's referred to as a cis arrangement. However, if they are sitting on opposite sides, it's called a trans arrangement. And so when, we, when, we, when we're talking about trans fats, what we're talking about is we're talking about 
turning the cis arrangement into a trans arrangement. And if we do that, and we usually will do that with the uh, monounsaturated fats, we can do the exact same thing with a polyunsaturated fat by what's referred to as partially hydrogenating the fat. Where what we do is we'll, we'll add some hydrogens into it and convert that polyunsaturated fat into a monounsaturated fat and do some chemistry within it to set those hydrogens in trans arrangements as well. And what this does is this takes what we would think of as being a healthier fat, the unsaturated fats, and turn it into a more solid fat. Now, just because we turn it into a more solid fat, it starts to take on the chemical properties of that saturated fat and takes on some of the metabolic processes of that saturated fat. And so it may not be as healthy as what we thought. And part of the health issues that we've seen with trans fats come about with the introduction of large amounts of trans fats within the, within the diet is associated with the chemistry that the body is going to use as relates to trying to metabolize those trans fats. So those are the fats that we have in the diet. And so how do we look at the fats that we need in terms of how much fat I should have in my diet? And so we do need fat in our diet. We need fat somewhere in the range of about 0.8 to one gram per kilogram of body mass per day. Of the saturated fatty acids, we want to make sure that we're consuming less than 20 grams per day. We do need saturated fats, even though saturated fats tend to get a bad uh, reference to them in terms of how much fat to have in our diet. We do need them for metabolic purposes. And we do need them in order to make some of the cell membranes because some of the phospholipids can be a combination of the saturated fat and the unsaturated fat. Trans fats, on the other hand, we need to have very small amounts of. Now, there are naturally occurring trans fats, and then there are artificial trans fats. And regardless of whether it's a naturally occurring trans fat or an artificial, artificial trans fat, we want to make sure that the total amount of trans fats consumed is less than two grams. These numbers, in terms of the less than, are associated with uh, metabolic issues and health issues that come about from consuming excessive quantities of both the saturated fat and the trans fats within the diet per day. Now we get to the unsaturated fats. And with the unsaturated fats, we're basically gonna make up the rest of the total amount of fat that we're gonna have in the day. And when we make up that remainder amount of fats in our diet, we want to make sure that we get some essential fatty acids, the omega-3s and the omega-6s. And for the omega-3s, we want to consume between 2 and 3 grams of omega-3s per day. And for the omega-6s, we want to make up somewhere between 12 and 17 grams per day. The omega-3 and the omega-6s are the essential fatty acids that are usually referenced on the food labels as the heart-healthy or brain healthy fatty acids. And we'll take a look at why we consider those to be heart healthy and brain healthy here as we, as we work through the, through the talk. There are other types of unsaturated fats that are non-essential fatty acids. Those are the omega-3, excuse me, omega-9s. The omega-9s are gonna be produced by our body, but we can also consume them in the foods that we consume. The omega-3s and the omega-6s are gonna come from the, the nuts and the fishes and the, and the, the land-based vegetables that we would eat in our normal uh, plate of food as we go through our normal consumed foods. We will also see those omega-3s and omega-6s within some of the vegetable oils that we will consume or use for cooking purposes.
So we know we need fats in the diet, but the problem is, is that we tend to talk about fats as healthy and unhealthy. And the healthy unhealthy is more about what is it going to do with within the body once we've metabolized it in terms of getting it into uh, the body from the intestines. The way in which the lipids are broken down is they're broken down into their fatty acid components and then put into a vesicle, which we call mycel, that will then be absorbed in the intestines and then transported to the liver, where it will then be processed and then sent out for circulation. Within this, we have some lipids that are more quote unquote healthy than other lipids. The healthier lipids, and once again, we got to put quotes around that, are the monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids. And they're typically considered to be healthier because they're going to be metabolized slightly different in terms of production of the circulating levels of triglycerides, as well as the circulating levels of the lipoproteins, the cholest quote unquote cholesterol molecules, the LDL and HDL that you might see on your blood readings. The less healthy are the saturated and the trans. And the saturated and trans are going to be considered to be less healthy than the monounsaturated and polyunsaturated because of the way in which they're metabolized and the way in which they are circulated around the body. They're going to be more involved with the uh, the less quote unquote healthy form of the lipoproteins. They are more likely to cause inflammatory responses, which is why we consider these to be less healthy than the other forms of the fats. One of the big myths that's out there about fat is, does eating fat mean that I'm going to be fat? And that is not the case. Dietary fat intake can lead to making fats in the body, but the simple answer here is no, eating fat does not necessarily make me fat. There are several factors that are gonna lead into fatness in terms of body fat that occurs from the diet, but most of the things that are gonna cause body fat issues is not necessarily dietary in nature. There are some dietary impacts that come about most of it is hormonal in nature. If we look at the influence of the stuff that we consume, a lot of fattiness, a lot of developing a fat of the body is going to come about from insulin responsing that occurs with consumption of glucose. Part of one of the, the sugars, one of the carbohydrates that we find in table sugar. When we overconsume sugars at greater than one to one gram per kilogram per hour within a meal, we will spike insulin. And when insulin spikes, one of the things that insulin will, will cause cells, in particular adipocytes and hepatocytes, so cells in the adipose tissue and cells in the liver, one of the things that it will do is it will cause those cells to start to undergo what's referred to as lipid synthesis, making lipids. There is another part of the sugars that we consume, another part of the carbohydrate that's gonna make table sugar known as fructose. And fructose is gonna do this make fat signal, this lipid synthesis signal independent of insulin. And so there are other things that are gonna trigger fat production that's not because I'm eating fat. There is a host of studies that came out in the, from the late forties to the mid seventies that looked at the low fat diet and basically showed that 
if I was consuming a lot of fat, I would also get a lot of other health issues that came about. There's a number of methodological issues, and I'll cover those methodological issues in a different uh, talk here. About fat and fattiness within the meal, that basically stated that if I consume large amounts of fat, it's going to lead to me becoming fat and having other health issues. The problem with that in terms of a, a simple overview is that there were too many methodological errors coming out from those studies to stipulate it's just because of fat in the diet. There are uh, other set of studies that have shown that consuming large amounts of fats in the diet actually increases the use of fat by the body. Once again, there's some methodological issues with those studies, and we'll take a look at those in a, in a different talk as well. When we look at this lipid synthesis, one of the things that we have to remember is that regardless of what we may have been told, the amount of lipogenesis, the amount of lipid synthesis, the lipogenesis making new lipids is the scientific term that we use for the chemical process of lipid synthesis making fats. The amount of lipogenesis taking place is not about our caloric balance, even though that's how we usually think about stuff. And once again, look at the talk on caloric balance versus nutrient balance. It's not about having a greater energy load than expenditure. It's more about the availability of metabolites, in particular glucose and fructose, as well as signaling for fatty acids coming from the tissues that's going to cause hormone signals that's gonna cause me to make lipids. And so if we, if we look at this, lipid synthesis, making of lipids is gonna come from having large amounts of carbohydrates not being used for other metabolic purposes, in particular fructose more than glucose. And that's simply because fructose is going to inhibit making glycogen and it's going to stimulate making lipids. And so if you look at the carbohydrate loading talk that was in a different podcast, we talked about consuming large amounts of glucose in order to store excess amounts of glycogen. One of the things we have to be concerned about is over-consuming that sugar when we're trying to carbohydrate load. When we're, not in when we're not in a depleted state, because that extra fructose that's coming in with the table sugar because table sugar, sucrose, is made up of glucose and fructose. That extra fructose that's coming in can, can inhibit, can stop, can block making of glycogen and will stimulate making of lipids instead. Having small lipid metabolites in circulation moving around the body will start to come into the cells. And as they come into the cells, in particular, the adipocytes, the cells in adipose tissue, the hepatocytes, the cells in the livers, as well as within the skeletal muscle and the cardiac muscle. When we have correct hormone signals, we'll start to shift some metabolism around and can cause more lipids to be produced in what's referred to as the lipid droplet state. And so what we have to remember is that the majority of the lipogenesis, the majority of the production of lipids is going to be within our adipose tissue, our fat tissue, both subcutaneous adipose tissue, the adipose tissue below the skin, as well as the fat tissues that's going to be surrounding all of the organs, which we refer to as visceral fat. Now, this adipose tissue has two distinct types of adipose tissue that we look at. One is referred to as brown adipose tissue, and the other one's referred to as white adipose tissue. And the difference between the brown and the white is the metabolism that those cells can do when hormonally induced, when hormonally triggered, to change their metabolism in one direction or another. And we'll talk about brown versus white adipose in another talk, because that's very important. We look at thermogenesis, making a body heat. 
but is also one of the things that we talk about when we look at quote unquote burning fats, which I'll introduce, but not get into a whole bunch here later on. And those are basically in stored fat. Those are large molecule vesicles of fats that are able to be held in place and secured for later use for later release to be used by other tissues beyond the tissue where they're being stored. Whereas in the skeletal muscle and in the cardiac muscle, they're gonna be stored in what we refer to as the lipid droplet state. And what the lipid droplet state is, is single triglyceride molecules that are able to be metabolized, to be broken apart, to be allowed to go into the metabolic processes to produce ATP for the cells within the skeletal muscle and within the cardiac muscle. For cardiac muscle, this happens very regularly. Cardiac muscle is sometimes referred to as a lipid preferential tissue. That means it likes to use lipids for its ATP. Whereas skeletal muscle will function as a uh, metabolically flexible tissue. That means it's a tissue that can go and use glucose, carbohydrates, or fats and fatty acids for uh, metabolic purposes to make ATP. When we look at the hormones that are going to be regulating this lipid synthesis process, the principal hormones that we're looking at are things like insulin, adipocin, apinectin, leptin, estrogen, growth hormone, testosterone, irisin, cortisol, as well as our thyroid hormones, T3 and T4. And when we look at this in terms of a schematic laying out, what is happening is we're going to have various types of lipid metabolites along with hormone signals that are going to cause changes of enzymes. And the changes of enzymes is going to lead to the initiation or the activation of fatty acid synthase. That fatty acid synthase is going to lead to the formation of palmitate, sterate, or olate based off of elongation purposes and processes. And then we're going to stick those palmitate, sterate, or olate onto a, glycer onto a glycerol molecule to form our triglyceride. This whole pathway is further explained in the fat metabolism video on the YouTube channel. Now, I, I mentioned earlier the fact that there were these studies out that came out that said, oh, all of these fats in the diet lead to all these health issues. But I mentioned there was also some methodological issues with this. One of the big misconceptions that come out from the methodologically flawed studies is that eating fat automatically is gonna make somebody unhealthy and that's not the case. We need fats in the diet. Once again, 0.8 to one gram per kilogram of body mass. We need somewhere between 15 and 20 grams of the unsaturated fats, the essential unsaturated fats in the diet. We need less than 20 grams of saturated fats in the diet just to be metabolically healthy. One of the other studies that came out that once again is methodologically flawed indicated that people who eat large amounts of fat have high amounts of cholesterol in circulation. While high fat diets are associated with cholesterol in circulation, the cholesterol molecules that we're measuring primarily are not coming from diet, but are coming from either our own cells releasing cholesterols or from the liver doing metabolism on lipids within the body that will increase the circulation of the LDL, HDL cholesterol molecules in circulation. It's not 
necessarily coming from cholesterol in the diet. We do need cholesterol in the diet. Cholesterol is going to help us help replace the cholesterol that we are releasing on a daily basis within the bile that's being produced by the liver and the gallbladder that will be excreted into the intestines for release with undigested non-absorbed materials within the feces. The association that we have with atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, quote unquote, hardening of the arteries is due to immune responses associated with a not me antigen marker or a quote unquote foreign antigen marker that's associated with cholesterols from cell membranes of animals, in particular animal cells that we are eating in our diet that get embedded into the VLDL and the LDL. And those are going to initiate inflammatory responses to the cholesterol depositing that might occur as cholesterol goes through circulation and interacts with the blood vessels, leaving small little bits of vascular damage as well as having some adherence, some sticking of the lipids within the VLDL and the LDL on the cells of the blood vessels. It's not from the triglycerides in circulation. Triglycerides in circulation will be absorbed at cells and used for metabolic purposes. One of the ways that we're able to circulate large amounts of the triglycerides around is within the LDL and VLDLs, whereas the HDLs tend to not have as much triglyceride within them relative to the LDL and the HDL. And that's where the HDL becomes the quote unquote healthy cholesterol. And that's simply because it's not causing vascular adherences. It's not getting stuck to the tissues of the blood vessels as it's going through its circulation. And so when we look at the health issue as it relates to diet and body fatness, it's a lot more complex than that. And once again, I recommend looking at the uh, YouTube video and talk on uh, the use of diet and exercise to correct for overfatness. We have this huge complex interaction of a whole host of factors that are going to come into play as it relates to cardiovascular disease, which is usually what people are talking about when they look at fat in the diet. And because we have all of these cogs moving around, all of these little bits and pieces of metabolic machinery going into play, it's very hard to stipulate that it's strictly due to one part of the diet and that being fat in the diet. But on the other hand, we do know some things about fat in the diet that will influence overall health. And one of the fats that we do know has an influence on overall health in a negative fashion is the trans fats. Part of it is because we cannot, metab cannot metabolize trans fats the way that, that we metabolize the other fats that we have in our diet. But the other thing is, is that trans fats will cause cellular responses to their presence. One of the things that comes out from exposure to trans fats is an increase of inflammatory proteins, hormones that are going to trigger inflammation. Having more trans fats in the diet and having more trans fats in circulation blocks to a certain extent, the liver's ability to transform the circulating levels of cholesterol. And so what it doesn't allow for is it does not allow for the LDLs to be transformed into the HDLs. And since I cannot transform it into the HDLs, I now have elevated levels of LDLs. And so this is where we get that association between high amounts of trans fat in the diet and high levels of cholesterol in circulation, particularly high levels of LDL in circulation. And the LDLs are the quote unquote unhealthy cholesterols. 
the more trans fat I have in the diet, the worse my lipid metabolism happens to be within the livers. But the, in, the other thing that's going to happen within the liver cells is that having these trans fats blocking the functions of the liver in one metabolic process is going to inhibit the ability for the liver to do other metabolic processes. And since it's going to inhibit the other metabolic processes within the liver, it's going to influence and interfere with overall liver functions. And it can lead to non-alcoholic fatty acid liver syndromes. Because we cannot metabolize trans fats the way that we metabolize all the other fats, the mitochondria will start to try to metabolize the trans fats, but it can't. And since it cannot metabolize the trans fats, it ends up causing what's referred to as a dysregulation of mitochondrial functions. That dysregulation of mitochondrial functions is associated with metabolic issues. And this is where we get the association of trans fats in the diet being linked with, associated with metabolic diseases and metabolic syndromes. One such metabolic syndrome would be type 2 diabetes. But we also will see because of the elevated inflammation taking place, the elevated LDL taking place, and the interference with the mitochondrias, we end up seeing more reactive oxidative species, ROSs, which cause oxidative stress to take place and lead to cardiovascular disease, as well as metabolic syndrome. And so those ROS accumulations is going to cause even more mitochondrial dysregulation and it's even more cardiovascular disease developing because of the fact that the ROSs, because of their chemistry, are going to start interfering with the way in which the membranes are going to be able to function, as well as how well mitochondria is able to do its metabolism because the mitochondria is going to start to have to overproduce antioxidants to combat the ROS accumulation that's taking place due to having the trans fats in presence. That oxidative damage is what we have the associated issues with trans fat diets. The more trans fats in the diet, the more oxidative stress that I have, the more oxidative stress I have, the more non-communicable disease I will express. And so I'll end up having, because of the trans fats in my diet, a greater risk for developing neurodegenerative diseases, memory issues, behavioral issues. I'll also have increased relative risk for cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, possible heart issues, as well as metabolic syndrome issues, possible type 2 diabetes. But on the other hand, we have these essential fatty acids that are usually referred to as the quote-unquote healthy fats. These are the heart-healthy fats or the brain-healthy fats that you might see on some of the labels for the, the nuts or the seeds that you can buy in the store or on the cans of the fish or being advertised at the fish marts. The omega-3s are going to influence inflammatory hormone production. They're going to reduce the pro-inflammation taking place and become more anti-inflammatory. They're going to reduce a lot of the reactive proteins that we see in circulation. By reducing reactive proteins, we reduce total amount of inflammation. This reduction in total amount of inflammation and reduction of reactive proteins in the blood reduces cardiovascular disease. The omega-3s tend to have a protective effect on mitochondrial function. They also tend to have a protective effect on some of the specific neuron metabolism, which allows it to allows people who have omega-3s in their diet to have improved neuron functions.
This doesn't mean you want to overconsume the omega-3s. Overconsumption of omega-3s can have a deleterious effect, can have a negative effect. This is not where if a little bit is good, a lot is going to be a, is going to be better for me. I want to stay within the range of that two to three grams per day of ALA, DHA, and EPA. The body doesn't necessarily use ALA specifically, but what it does is going to convert that ALA into DHA and EPA to go about doing the functions that omega-3 fatty acids have on immune cell functions, as well as neuron functions, as well as mitochondrial functions within the body. The other one is the omega-6s. And the omega-6s are going to reduce LDLs. They're going to reduce LDLs by allowing for the conversion of the LDLs into the HDLs. It's going to influence vascular inflammation by reducing the amount of C-reactive protein as well as a lot of the immune hormones that trigger vascular inflammation and inflammation in general, which is going to reduce my relative risk for cardiovascular disease. We then have another type of fatty acid, the omega-9s. The omega-9s are not necessarily an essential fatty acid because our body can produce omega-9s. But what some research has shown is that if I consume omega-9s within my unsaturated fat total, there is a possible influence on changing my insulin sensitivity, which is very important for people who are metabolically inflexible, cannot use lipids and amino acids and carbohydrates for ATP purposes. For people who are metabolically inflexible, for people who have a metabolic syndrome, one of the things that happens with metabolic syndrome is a change in the response that tissues have to insulin where they become less sensitive to insulin. With the consumption of omega-9s plus the naturally occurring omega-9s, there is a possible influence on increasing insulin sensitivity in cells that are sensitive to insulin, skeletal muscle, adipose tissue, liver cells that looks at lowering metabolic syndrome risks for people who have low insulin sensitivity. So the omegas are going to be healthy for us in terms of metabolic purposes and health purposes, whereas the trans fats are going to be unhealthy in terms of metabolism and health purposes. The other fat that fits within the trans fat nature of triggering a lot of inflammation is the saturated fats. Most of that association with saturated fats and inflammation, particularly vascular inflammation, inflammation within the blood, is linked with where we get saturated fats from, where we're consuming foods that are high in saturated fat tend to come from animal protein. And the animal source for the proteins is going to have the mark, the not markers, the antigen markers that will trigger an immune response that cause a lot of the vascular health issues that we associate with the saturated fats that occur not in the same manner that the trans fats occur. We need saturated fats in the diet for metabolic purposes. Most of the metabolism that we do for energy purposes. When, when it comes to fats are going to come from the saturated fats, not from the unsaturated fats. Which leads to the introduction to a talk that's going to come up a little later on. What about burning fat? What is this idea about burning fat? Most of the idea about burning fat or most of the concept is coming not from metabolism, but from a cosmetic view of fat being ugly. And if I exercise doing specific things, I'm going to somehow get rid of the fat on my body. 
And that's not necessarily going to be the case when we look at fats metabolically. When we talk about burning fat, you are actually going to burn more fat sitting around than you do when you exercise. And that's because the way in which we use fat for energy purposes is based off of the demand that I need for ATP and the efficiency of the pathway that I'm going to use to get ATP back. When I have very low demand for ATP, I use the most efficient pathway possible. And the most efficient pathway possible is the fat pathway. That's where I'm going to use fats, take it through a whole series of chemical reactions to give me a metabolite known as acetyl-CoA. And that acetyl-CoA will then go into the mitochondria to allow for ATP to be produced by the cells. The problem with this efficient pathway is that it takes a very long time, cell speaking wise, to get the ATP back, which means that I cannot use that pathway if I'm doing very strenuous things. The idea of fat burning from exercise is more of a misnomer than an actual phenomenon. And it comes from a branch of endurance training that showed when intensity is done without changing, there's no change in the intensity and a heart rate that is between 50 and 70% of the maximum heart rate. The metabolites that I see being exchanged between the body and the environment, the gases, indicate that I am maximally using fat for getting ATP back. So when we talk about exercise, quote unquote, burning fat, yes, it can, yes, it can burn fat, but it's only going to be maximally burning fat in that very small range of heart rate response where I'm not changing my intensity and my heart rate is between 50% of my maximum and 70% of my maximum. And for most of us in terms of exercise, this means not being able to go outside and exercise, walking, jogging outside, but being on a treadmill where the tread is flat and I'm not speeding up the tread at all. And the reason why we need to have the tread flat, which means that we're not changing the incline, that doesn't mean we don't set it at an incline. We can set it at an incline, but we just can't change that incline. And we can't change the speed. And we have to make sure our heart rate is between 50 and 70% and not going above or below that range. We can maximally, quote unquote, burn fat. But most of us don't exercise that way. Well, what about the pills? What about the tablets that supposedly burn fat? That doesn't necessarily happen. And I'll get more into that in detail in, in another discussion. You can also look at a couple of papers that I've published that relate to the use of what was referred to as thermogenic agents. These are the quote unquote fat burners. What the fat burners are going to attempt to do is they attempt to change the hormone signals to make the mitochondria want to use lipids more than other fuel sources. But it's also going to send signals that's going to cause the cells, the muscle cells, the cardiac muscles, the adipose cells to break apart their lipid droplets for use in metabolic pathways. But the problem is, is that is that's not as effective as simply changing my diet or changing my exercise routines and come with a whole host of adverse events, things that can cause health issues for people who are taking the quote unquote fat burners.
So what's the take-home message here on fats? Well, we need fat. We need approximately one gram per kilogram of body mass per day. We need about three grams of our omega-3s. We need 12 to 17 grams of our omega-6s. We wanna make sure that we keep our trans fats less than two grams per day. And we wanna make sure that we keep our saturated fats around 20 grams per day. Fats have a whole host of functions, metabolically speaking, as well as anatomically speaking. And we need to make sure we have fats in our diet. There are a host of health issues that come about if I don't have fats in my diet. Just because I'm having fat in my diet does not lead to the person being fat. That's one of the big misconceptions and misnomers out there about fat in the diet. Having fat in the diet is benefit. There's a benefit to having fat in the diet. Having too much carbohydrate in the diet can lead to fatness. But once again, there's a whole complex interwoven web of factors that we cannot stipulate that it's just one thing causing fatness over the other. The idea of burning fat from activity is related to the rate at which ATP is needed by the tissues and is not based on any specific type of activity being done. You may hear about, oh, do this fat burning activity or this fat burning exercise. Well, once again, just sitting around is going to burn fat because the rate of ATP being needed is going to be the, the thing that's going to determine, am I going to burn fat when I'm doing stuff or not? Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. As I was leading to within this talk, we have a whole bunch of other talks coming in as it relates to more things on metabolism. There are other talks already out there looking at carbohydrates in the diet and proteins in the diet. So I hope you came away with learning a few new things about fast in the diet. Please stay tuned for more discussions on this topic of metabolism physiology, and health. 